The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, good evening. It's warm. Uh, So when I was preparing tonight's talk, it was really kind of grew out of some conversations we had after last week's talk on, excuse me, uh, moral humility. And at the time, one of the topics we talked about was patient endurance. And as I was moving my way through this talk, it began to get very heavy, 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 slow, lethargic, not at all interesting. (laughs) And I said, well... I've got to be sure and close with a nice poem on joy. And then it occurred to me that perhaps it would be more appropriate to begin with joy than to end with it. And so I invite you to listen to this and not listen to it with an idea that you have to think about what it's saying so much as you just feel what it has to say. Just feel what it has to say. So... Uh, This is from the precision of pain and the blurriness of joy. The touch of longing is everywhere. By Yehuda Amakai. The precision of pain and the blurriness of joy. I'm thinking how precise people are when they describe their pain in a doctor's office. Even those who haven't learned to read and write are precise. This one's a throbbing pain, that one a wrenching pain, this one gnaws, that one burns. This is a sharp pain, and that a dull one. Right here, precisely here, yes, yes. Joy blurs everything. I've heard people say, after nights of love and feasting, it was great. I was in seventh heaven. Even the spaceman who floated in outer space, tethered to a spaceship, could say only, Great, wonderful, I have no words. The blurriness of joy and the precision of pain. I want to describe with the sharp pain's precision, happiness and blurry joy. I learned to speak among the pains. The blurriness of joy, the precision of pain. I want to describe with a sharp pain's precision, happiness and blurry joy. I learn to speak among the pains. So I invite you to think about this, that, that we often are, can be very specific about suffering and what bothers us and what's difficult. But the idea of happiness is something that, well, we just don't spend so much time on it. We long for it, but exactly what we mean by that is not clear. Whereas we can be very precise about everything that irritates us. This, this morning, uh, as I was sitting in my office, I began to notice, actually I noticed long before I was sitting in my office, there were weed whackers going, three of them all around the building. 
And it went on for four hours, which was a prodigious amount of time. Usually we think, oh yeah, that's a weed whacker, it'll stop. And then it went on, and it went on, and it went on, and it went on. (laughs) And I could find my mind beginning to become irritated and wondering what I could do about it and running around and closing windows and having to fix. And I watched that happening. Such a simple thing. And then I got distracted, and I didn't even notice it. It went from being something very irritating to something that was just in the background. One of the the responses, there were a couple of different responses to the conversation last week, and one of them was uh, weariness. What do you do? So the, so the general topic was sort of how do people talk to one another? And we, we find ourselves divided into those people and us. And we think this way and they think that way. And how do we bridge that? And how do we have civil discourse? And of course, what happens is we think we've made progress and then it shows up again. And so somebody mentioned, oh, what do you do? And it just keeps happening. How, how, do you, how do you stay present for something that just keeps happening? And somebody else talked about what it was like to be in a group and to disagree with what was being said and wonder, when can I speak up and when is it not wise to speak up? And we, we were talking last week about uh, not being sure, adopting the position of not sureness and appreciating the importance of impermanence, that things are always changing, and that we don't know what's going to happen in the next moment. And how do we meet that over and over again? Well, that's great, but where does that uncertainty end? When do I say, now this is something that I need to be present for. This is something I have to react to. How, How do we find that place between constantly being vigilant and constantly being present. How does uncertainty end? How do I embrace it? What do we really do? When I was uh, talking about this, I I spoke about Ajahn Chah, who said uh, that it was important to adopt this non-sureness, that non-sureness was the way of the noble ones. And in that discussion, he said, We must be patient. The most important thing is patient endurance. Now, when you say patient endurance, it sounds heavy. (laughs) It sounds like, okay, I'm just going to be here and I'm going to stick with it. And it it becomes something that's a chore. And so one of the reasons I wanted to talk about the joy first is to remind ourselves that what we're trying to do is, in fact, not become these ideal people. What we're trying to do is be happy. What we're trying to do is decrease the suffering in our lives. Now, if you want to lose weight, you exercise, you adopt a certain diet, you do the things that are going to promote that. If you want to become an athlete, you adopt a... a way of becoming an athlete. You exercise, you lift weights, you run. 
how do we develop patience? You know, it's not like we're born patient. I can tell you I was not patient with those weed whackers. But I could remind myself to be patient. I could remind myself, okay, that's just them. And I did not adopt the idea of endurance as being what I'm going to put up with. What I'm going to put up with. There are lots of ways to think about endurance. And one of them has to do with uh, being present for. I'm going to stay here for this. But that doesn't mean you have to wallow in it. You don't have to roll around in it and say, oh, isn't this great? This suffering is going to make me a better person. No, you don't have to do that. But it also isn't only about overcoming it. It's about perseverance and persistence. Perseverance and persistence. That's really different than saying, okay, I'm not going to let it get to me. It's a much more positive impulse. Perseverance and persistence has to do with saying, here I am again. I'm still here. I had a a conversation with my brother last week. And we've had some rocky times over the years. And I recently saw him. He said, gee, you know, I'm really sorry you had to leave so soon. And I said, well, there were these circumstances. And he said, well, it just seems like we just can't seem to get it together. And I said, but we're still here, and we're still alive. And it's not over. (laughs) It doesn't have to always be the same. And in saying that, I realized realized that was actually true, (laughs) that it didn't have to be the same, that I couldn't assume that my relationship with my brother was always going to be this slightly tight, maybe uncomfortable place. And that it arose out of the things that we were noticing about one another that made us different. He is a fundamentalist Christian, and he is constantly talking to me about the way that is the real way and the only way and the possible way. And when my resistance gets too strong to that, we can't talk anymore. And even though I know that, I have to practice all the time when I see him. And notice that what I know about him encompasses a whole lot more than that religious belief. We have a whole lifetime together. I could choose any number of experiences And those are the ones I need to persist in, not the ways in which we are different. Not the ways in which we're different. In the introduction to the the book I referenced last week, which was Food for the Heart, Ajahn Amaro wrote the introduction, and he, he talked about Ajahn Chah's complete devotion to practice. What you do is you practice. What else do you do? You practice. That persistence is, in fact, his chief message. You just keep practicing. What he says is the encouragement of patient endurance is to hold steady in the midst of difficulty, to truly apprehend and digest the experience of dukkha, of suffering, to understand its causes 
and let them go. This holding steady is the recurring theme. Holding steady. How do we hold steady? How do we bring persistence to our practice? Why do we do that? What difference does it make? Another thing we talked about last week is that the Buddha said that the real goal of practice is a peaceful heart. And that's why we do it. A peaceful heart. How do we find a peaceful heart? The joy that arises in life can only arise in the presence of a peaceful heart. It doesn't arise in the midst of ill will and agitation. Because at those times we're preoccupied with all the negative emotions that come up. We're preoccupied with justifying why we're angry or why we're upset or why we're embarrassed. And we don't have any energy left over for just being there, for finding the place in the heart that is calm and steady. Steady in the face of all the things that are trying to agitate us. When we're faced with a mismatch of ideas, political ideas, religious ideas, familial differences, the way we respond is related to the attitude we have to the moment that we're in. How do we respond? Well, the first thing that happens is the amygdala takes over and we react. The emotional reaction comes first and then, then we think about how we're going to do that. So how do we react with peace and, and not apathy? <laughs> you know, the object here is not to lay down and go to sleep. The object is, is to actually be engaged in life. So... Dalai Lama wrote a book called The Ethics, Ethics for the New Millennium. And in it, he described a case, he also talks a great deal about patient endurance, by the way. Seems to be a theme of that. And he, he refers to a quality at, that the Tibetans call sopa. Sopa. And it is sometimes translated as patience, able to bear, able to withstand, but also resolution resolution, to have a resolute intention. So he spoke of a monk that was a friend of his or possibly a teacher of his before he left Tibet. And this monk had been imprisoned for 20 years before he was freed and uh, went to India and joined the Dalai Lama in exile. And he asked him, how did you sustain yourself during those periods of time? And he said that his fear, his only fear, was that he would lose his sense of compassion for his jailers. That's pretty remarkable. His fear that he would lose his sense of compassion for his jailers. You know, I don't know how that lands with you. Does it seem doable? Does it seem idealistic? Unrealistic? Possible? Even for those of us who are unsure about whether we could be so selfless 
uh, enduring 20 years of injustice. There is, a, there is a trace of that possibility, and if there is a trace, then it's possible. If you have, uh, suppose you have a friend, you've known this person for a long time, and they suddenly turn on you. And the immediate reaction is outrage. What? What? How can you say that? And, and you're, you're filled with, with uh, reactive tendencies, and you want to just take this person's head off, and all kinds of thoughts come to your mind about betrayal and the injustice of it. And then you think, wait a minute, we've been friends a long time. What's this about? And eventually you find out that someone has spread something to this person about you that is untrue, and this person doesn't know whether they can trust you anymore. And suddenly you say, oh, that's what that's about. And then you're so grateful that you didn't tell this guy what a jerk he was and promised that you were never going to speak to them again. And that gratitude for what you did not do is a trace of the fear that you are going to lose compassion for your jailer. It's the same impulse. That impulse that says, oh, thank goodness I didn't say that. The realization, the realization that what you saw as a betrayal is not in fact a betrayal. If you can enjoy that in your heart, then you can cultivate a sense of not wishing ill will on your enemies. You can cultivate that. It can become commonplace for you. You can give up the idea that what happens to those people with whom you do not agree should be all bad. You know, all of us uh, have known revenge fantasies. But it turns out that revenge is, in fact, not sweet. It's quite sour. You know, if somebody you know, somebody maybe you don't know very well, let's take a public figure, reaches their comeuppance, and you say, all right, I knew that was going to happen. And then you notice that it really doesn't feel all that good, that it's really kind of sticky and sour. And you realize that you actually don't want for that person to suffer. Even, even if you for years have wondered how this person could be getting away with whatever it is they're getting away with in your mind, you realize, oh, I didn't really want them to drive the car off the cliff. I just said that. I didn't really mean that. The trick is when anger arises, can we let it go? Can we just see it as something that arises and not bring it in, welcome it, encourage it, tell the story over and over again to get the energy up really high? 
can we just let it go? Can we say, okay, anger is here. Irritation is here. Intolerance is here. But I am not intolerance. I'm not anger. And keep saying it over and over and over until it becomes the mode that we occupy all the time. This is what patient endurance is about. If we train ourselves to see, oh, this is what's happening. Oh, okay, I don't want this to be happening. I don't want to be sitting here stewing in my own juices. That person doesn't even know I'm stewing in my own juices. I can just not stew. This is radical. And then we think about it again and we say, "Ah, I don't need that story. If we can cultivate more skillful responses, oh, that was really irritating. I'm not going to let that spoil my day. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to think about what would it take for me to change my mind? What would it take for me to change my mind? Now, that's a really interesting thing. If you're thinking about someone, I don't know, choose something. Um, Those are people who believe that uh, uh, children should not be allowed to speak to, to say an adult's first name, they should call them by their last name. It should be Mr. Lewis. <laughs> it shouldn't be Lewis. It should be something that is more respectful. If you really believe in the respect for authority and age, and then there's this person over here who thinks kids really should be kids. Pretty much anything they do is not going to be really all that bad. And what we need to do is encourage their ease and their sense of confidence in the world. And these two people are sitting in a room. How do they talk to one another? What do they see? And suppose it is your opinion that children ought to be able to just run around and play. We don't need to turn them into many adults. What would it take to get you to change your mind? What would it take for you to be able to talk to this person that you think is just totally unreasonable on the subject of children. Now, you don't have to know the answer to this question, but it's very useful to ask it. So that you're not always trying to convince somebody else that they should, to your point of view, but ask yourself, what is it actually that you're holding on to? It turns out when you do... um, Uh, We spoke last week about Jonathan Haidt, 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 H-A-I-D-T, and he talked about uh, one of the things he studies is the difference between uh, the moral foundations of liberals and conservatives. And it turns out that liberals, extreme liberals, which we would call maybe progressive, politically progressive, have this idea that extreme conservatives do not have 
a moral foundation for caring for other people. And the conservatives are actually shocked that they think that because from their point of view, they do care for other people. It's very important. In fact, what they care about is the community a whole lot more than the extreme liberal does who believes that the individual is the most important person. Now, if you want these people to talk to one another, they need to be able to see what the other person actually thinks. It turns out they actually share a moral foundation. It's just that taken to the extreme, it doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like it. Many things in our lives are that way. Many things that we hold dear, we kind of put in a box and we're not, we're not opening ourselves to the possibility that it may not be what we think, what we see. In order to return to peace, we need to cultivate patience with ourselves and patience for other people. Cultivate patience. That, that moment when we stop and say, okay, okay, I really disagree with you. <laughs> I really, really disagree with you. Notice that energy in ourselves. See it in ourselves. Know the desire to just scream and wait and wait and do it again tomorrow and show up the next day and do it again. We can't pretend it's not there. Presumably, if we feel strongly about something, it has value. And it's something we believe in, and it's something we want to support. And it's our responsibility to do that. So we need to do that. But what we're talking about here is resilience and flexibility, and the ability to not be rigid in the way we see that not-sureness that we talked about. It may be useful to take the time to reflect on patience. Patience as as seen by forgiveness, the ability to reserve judgment, to have compassion for others, for the conditions that other peoples are encountering. To notice when we are, have equanimity and when we don't. How do we practice and what is practice? What is the practice of patient endurance? When we meditate, we cultivate the capacity for a calm mind. It's not enough just not to do stuff. We also need to cultivate a calm mind. We need to, through insight, notice what our triggers are. What are those things that set me off? Why am I holding on to those things? What do they mean? In his book, On Tyranny, Timothy Snyder lists states of minds and habits to be cultivated. And one of the things he talks about is um, that we should make eye eye contact and small talk. 
What he's really saying is you need to connect with people. If you don't connect, how do you know that you hate them? (laughs) How do you know if you're unwilling to meet them? And it turns out when you can look them in the eye, it changes your attitude. Because you can't unsee them. You can't unsee them. We have to know who we are with. The business of name-calling and categorizing is a dehumanizing step. When we dehumanize people, we're not caring. Even if we're making the argument in the name of caring, we are not caring when we dehumanize them, when we claim that they have no human characteristics. In the Discourse on Violence from the Book of Eights, it says, When asked, I say, the benefit of being unshakable is being even-minded everywhere and being without cruelty, greed, and agitation. For one who knows, who has no agitation, there is no karmic accumulation. Abstaining from karmic activity One sees safety everywhere. That's fairly remarkable. One sees safety everywhere. Being without cruelty, greed, and agitation. In order to be able to keep standing and being present, we need to develop the capacity for being calm in the face of adversity. And we do that by learning what calm is. By learning what it means to have a peaceful heart. What does a peaceful heart feel like? We have to practice. What does it feel like? What does it feel like when we feel at home? What does it mean to be unshakable and even-minded? It means we can see even our own emotional outbursts and say, oh, an emotional outburst. But it is not me. It is not I. I've recently been reading a book by uh, Daniel Goleman and uh, Richard Davidson. It's called Altered Traits. And it's kind of a compendium of all the studies that they've done on the effect of meditation on the brain. And one of the things that they say, they say a number of things about all of the claims about meditation that they don't want to have to defend. (laughs) Because the way people do experiments is not always very rigorous. But what they have been able to notice is that there are... uh, there are actual structures in the brain that are modified in long-time meditators. That literally different sections of the brain develop through practice. In the same way that your, your ability to run develops when you, when you practice running, when you get up every day and do that. And they said that these effects tend to be cumulative over time. So you know, somebody that just takes a course on mindfulness may see some immediate effects, but they go away pretty quickly. 
But when this practice occurs over years and years, the effects are measurable. They're measurable. And the sections of the brain that have to do with empathy and compassion are enhanced in long-time meditators. They're larger. They just grow bigger. It's quite remarkable. And one of the things they talk about is this concept of neuroplasticity. I don't know how you feel about that, but I found it a very encouraging thing to find out that the brain is not just in the business of decomposing after you... The brains sort of come to some sort of development around early young adulthood, and then the assumption was, okay, from there it's all downhill. But it turns out that that's not true. The brain does change. It changes with activity. And the way they describe it here, neuroplasticity, the shaping of the brain by repeated experiences, goes on unwittingly throughout our days, though we are typically unaware of these forces. We spend long hours ingesting what's on the screen of our digital devices or in countless other relatively mindless pursuits. Meanwhile, our neurons are dutifully strengthening or weakening the relevant brain activity. That's pretty interesting. What such a haphazard mental diet most likely leads to equally haphazard changes in the muscle of the mind. Okay. <laughs> but for me, the idea of neuroplasticity gives me hope. It gives me hope that by careful attention, we can learn the habits of mind that run our decisions and responses. We can see what our triggers are. We can develop and perhaps evolve habits of mind that give us an ability to interact with one another in a peaceful way. We could overcome our differences by careful consideration and care for one another. We can develop these capacities. It gives me hope that peace is attainable, that a peaceful heart, a peaceful heart in this moment is possible. Neuroplasticity is linked to patient endurance. As Ajahn Amaro said at the end of his introduction to Food for Heart, may these teachings provide nourishing contemplation for seekers of the way and help to establish the heart that is awake, pure, and peaceful. Thank you. So, Anybody have any comments on this? Complaints? Observations? Was it too heavy? (laughs) Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, My name's Christina. Mm -hmm. I thought maybe I'll say something because I took my phone out and started writing a note. I was like, well, that okay. was enough to <laughs> want to remember something um, about the, I was on retreat uh, 40 days ago mm-hmm. and I was talking to Gil and I remember saying to him how it was something about noticing the power of consistent practice mm-hmm. and what you're talking about. Um, and I'm coming up on about a year a very, very diligent, consistent, almost daily, being here all the time, going on retreat, thinking about this stuff all the time as much as possible, practice. 
because um, it helps. <laughs> and I needed it when I first started. But this, uh, and then looking back over the previous 10 years before the consistent practice of doing a little bit and like having these aha moments or going on little retreats here and there or being like, oh my gosh, I have this insight or my heart opened, but then still being highly reactive. Mm-hmm. And then the, the back and forth of that, of like feeling almost the pain of how much it hurt to be like, oh, I, I noticed and experienced something so peaceful, but I can't hold, I, not hold on to it, but I can't, um, I can't stay, it's eluding me all the time. And then also just getting more and more agitated. Um, and so it's been interesting to watch how I still get agitated. <laughs> I still have moments where I'm highly emotional, but overall, um, you know, the, the regulation, emotional regulation has, has gotten better. Okay, that's great. That's wonderful. So inherent in this, this uh, account is a longing for that peace to be consistent, for that calm to be persistent. And also I heard you saying, I'm seeing when it's not. And I'm seeing, and and I'm longing for this. And I think it's it's useful to respect a longing for. And it is different than a grasping at and a holding on. And I heard you say, I want to hold on to. Well, I don't mean hold on to, because, of course, we know that's the wrong language, right? We know we can't say that. But to, to honor that sense of longing and to know that, okay, this has happened so far, and to adopt the habit of patience. You know, we, we sort of want to have, we, we, when we start rubbing out a spot, we want it to be white now. And we we add spot remover and we throw it in the wash and we bring it out again and, and we dry it and it's still there and then we do it again and we throw it in the wash and we bring it out and it's still there and we try again and, you know, oh, I don't even see what I'm working on. And that's when we know, when I don't even see what I'm, what I'm working on. But that awareness, that, that continued awareness is that building the groove of a new way of being. And, and that persistence becomes not so much a struggle as a fact. And when that persistence is, when, when you just notice, oh, then you, you be, the, the whole idea of judging what arises, the reactions, drops away. It just drops away. I once saw a remarkable uh, exchange between the Dalai Lama and Robert Thurman, who was one of his first um, Western students. And it was a big stage. It was in San Francisco, and there were 2,000 people in the audience. And, 
And somebody asked the Dalai Lama a question, and he responded. And Robert Thurman said, Oh, Your Holiness, I think what you really intended to say was so-and-so. And you could see the anger rise up in the Dalai Lama. And he said, I said exactly what I intended to say. And then all the energy went away. And then he explained what he wanted to say. It was interesting because you could see the anger arise. You know, we're talking 90 seconds, 60 seconds, not even, just gone. We're not required to become inhuman. We are humans. What we do is we develop the capacity to not be run around the block by our own emotions. So um, since it's a current hot thing for me, (laughs) Jonathan hates stuff. I was listening today to an account he gave. He has this particular, he wrote a book called The Happiness Hypothesis also, in addition to The Righteous Mind, which I was on last week. And one of the things he talks about is a model of how the mind works. And he talks about the elephant, which is the emotional response, and the rider, who is the guider of the elephant. And that mostly what happens is that when that elephant is moving along is the elephant decides which way they're going to go. And then the rider sort of, you know, makes adjustments, but it's already determined. But it is possible to train the elephant. It's possible to create conditions where the normal is to be compassionate, where the normal is to be calm and unshakable, where that's the normal and not the unusual. But it takes practice. It doesn't just happen because we want it to be true. It isn't because our intention is unpure. It isn't because we haven't been doing it long enough. It is only that we are trying too hard, that we're, we're reaching outside of ourselves. And we continue to have this realization that practice is just happening here. And it comes. And it comes. So uh, it's really beautiful to hear you talk about your practice. It is, uh, it is encouraging. It is finding the joy every time you notice. Every time you notice. Uh-oh, this is what's happening in this moment. And to see that as something that, that wouldn't have occurred if we weren't aware of it. And it didn't occur because it's inevitable. But the habit of awareness becomes reality. And when we can live in that space of the constantly arising and letting go, we have a peaceful heart. So, thank you for telling us about that. It's very sweet. Anyone else? Okay. I have, let me see. So we're going to end with a piece of joy anyway, because why not? This is by Rainier Maria Rilke. The reality of any joy in the world is indescribable. 
only in joy does creation happen. Happiness, on the contrary, is only a promising and interpretable pattern of things already existing. Joy, however, is a marvelous increasing of what already exists, a pure addition out of nothingness. How superficially must happiness engage us, after all, if it can leave us time to think and worry about how long it will last? Joy is a moment, unobligated, timeless from the beginning, not to be held, but also not to be truly lost again. Since under its impact, our being is changed chemically, so to speak, and does not only, as may be the case with happiness, savor and enjoy itself in a new mixture. Joy is a moment, unobligated, timeless from the beginning, not to be held, but also not to be truly lost again. Since under its impact, our being is changed chemically, so to speak, and does not only, as may be the case with happiness, savor and enjoy itself in a new mixture. May you all know the creativity of joy in this moment. Thank you. Be well.